buys a Hershey's bar, all of a sudden $10. And then somebody could be there and go, well, it's because now it's not being made with slave labor. There's obviously a lot of potential downstream consequences to that, but the simple outcome would be a direct connection between how much something costs and how much suffering was put into it. I'm Keegan. I'm Rashad. And I'm Eli. Welcome to Idea Garden, a space we created to cultivate ideas of all shapes, sizes, and smells. On today's episode, Keegan steers us through the choppy waters of economics, the pitfalls of the adversarial Game A economic system of the world today, and his ideas for what would go into an alternative system that values happiness instead of winning and losing. Keegan, I think you've been thinking about something lately that I would love to hear about. So uh, why don't you just kind of, I want to give you the floor to explore where in whatever directions and paths you want to take. So I, I, well, is, I don't know. So in a previous episode, we talked about this notion of like a game A versus game B framing of problems and like approaches to the world and system building and things like that. And I've been thinking about applications of game B thinking a lot. And I guess the one I've been thinking about most lately is this idea of happiness accounting, um, which I don't know if that's actually like a term that exists, but it's just the one I'm going to use because it seems to make sense to me. Um, It's just the idea that like in the same way that we account for different financial losses and gains, we should try to develop a system for accounting for happiness, something that's a bit more empirical and something that can be referenced between groups, between individuals, between nations, kind of like interscale. Um, because I think in doing that, it will allow us to actually have meaningful conversations about whether or not we're achieving our goals. And so I think like the significance of that is best illustrated by looking at what we do today, which from an economic perspective, you know, the king metric tends to be GDP. That's how we compare many nations. And most economists will come out right away and say that they don't believe it's a good metric, that there's a lot of problems with it. It doesn't capture the nuance between, okay, like this nation has a much higher GDP, but like the GDP per capita is way lower. There's implications we could talk about forever. Uh, can, but that, that's can like I just ask, cheap metric. Sorry. sorry. Can, can I just ask... Um that GDP way of looking at things, could you just explain how that kind of epitomizes game A and and explain game A a little bit and then in relation to game B and what you're trying to do here with happiness accounting? I think a refresher might help. Yeah, well, so, so can, you want me to connect the idea of GDP to game A? Uh, you don't have to. I guess more so I just want to make sure we have a little bit of a refresher of of what those concepts are. Which I remember okay. you saying last time is like the something very difficult to explain concisely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I figure it'd be worth just having a quick little refresher before we jump right into that. Yeah, okay. Well, so in a nutshell, game A is what exists in the world today. It's like the primary mode of competition and organization that we all exist underneath. And you can just think of it as this idea that value is predicated on scarcity. And because of scarcity, we compete over things. And so every interaction between people and between systems of people is rivalrous. 
meaning there's going to be some sort of winner and some sort of loser. I like the word and, adversarial. Yeah, or adversarial is a great way to frame it. And then just the idea that, you know, that is able to get you so far, but eventually it becomes self-terminating in the sense that there are some problems that cannot be solved in a rivalrous manner. And you can look at something like, you know, containing a global pandemic or addressing something like climate change. Basically, anything that supersedes the current, like, largest denomination that we have, which is usually, like, statehood, so a nation or potentially the EU, but even then that's not really as cohesive as you would need. Anyway, anytime you have a problem that supersedes that, that denomination, a rivalrous format is not going to allow you to actually solve it. So game A is what we live in today, and there's many, many points that can be made about the advantages of game A and how it's gotten us so far, but there's also many, many points to be made about how it, it eventually leads to its own kind of self-undoing. And to be clear, game A is, is it fair to say game, our game A we live in is built out of money or currency? Yeah, I mean, money is like a fundamental instrument in game A. But I think like there, you could argue that game A existed prior to like formal definitions of currency. Okay. But money, yeah. I mean, well, we can definitely talk about money. But I would say it's it's like a necessary but not sufficient condition or something like that. Understood. Um, and then game B would be the the alternative way of looking at this, which is just to say trying to restructure the way that we interact with each other to see things as non-rival risks. So understanding that a lot of scarcity is manufactured and not real. And if we were able to collaborate and sort of redefine senses of ownership, we might be able to do things that we currently cannot do and kind of align human behavior in a way that's more beneficial for everyone involved and create a sort of non-zero sum game to play. Um, and I think the last time we talked about it, we mentioned the idea of chess and how chess is a rivalrous game but the, the beauty of chess is that the winner or loser of the game of chess then gets to continue existing in the game of life but if we're playing the game of life rivalrously, rivalrously then whoever loses or wins in that game really is no winner at all because you know they the game self-terminates right once you've won it it's over and then what does it mean to have won so that is kind of like the framing I would use for game A versus game B. What's the counterpart and, term of zero-sum game? Is there one in economics? Uh, yeah, it would just be po I mean, positive sum, meaning like, you know, the person who... So if there's two players in the game, the person who wins gets something, and the person who loses gets something less, but it's not actually directly opposite what the person who won got. So like, if we're playing over $1 and I win, so I get the dollar, and you lose, you've lost a dollar, zero-sum. Any other variation that would allow us to both win something would be positive sum. Or you could imagine some fucked up game where it's totally negative sum and both people lose regardless. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So I just had to ask those clarifying questions. Now, go wherever you want to go. Yeah. Well, so I think one of the reasons that it's very hard to propose a game B is because, you know, like every, every other major revolutionary idea, people will say, well you know, how would you actually achieve it? What would make it better? And like, what's wrong with the status quo? So I think, you know, very specifically, anytime you're trying to challenge some sort of system that exists and functions at least reasonably well, the question will always be like, you know, what's, how, how is it better than what we have? What's wrong with what we have? And I think the best way to illustrate that is to talk about this idea of happiness accounting. Um, and I think like what's helpful here is to talk about how the general theory by which most nations are run, at least from an economic perspective, is that if GDP is going up, if you know stock markets are going up, so like the Nasdaq, Dow Jones Industrial Average, if those things are going up, 
then as a result, people are better off, they're more economically well endowed, and as a result, they'll be happier. So this is like the fundamental presupposition that we operate on as a nation and, and most nations do as well, I would say. And I think the issue with this is I don't actually think there's, there's great evidence that that's the case, that happiness trends with those other factors. And I think we take that as a given because so much of the world is viewed through this lens of kind of either economic entitlement or deprivation and there's corresponding sense of self that goes along with those two. But I don't think that's actually some sort of fundamental law of physics. I think it's just a conditioned lens. And like something that's helpful to talk about here is that money currency, like what we spend all, the, all day on, is just a proxy for value. Like a good currency is a, is a very close proxy for value, but the fact of the matter is like it will never be a perfect proxy. And what that means is things that are valuable don't always get funded. Ventures that would be very valuable and generate a lot of you know, utility for individuals don't always receive the funding they should because it's not a perfect proxy and because investment markets are not perfectly competitive. So people who have the ability to invest tend to be a particular class of people who have a particular notion of what's valuable. And that sort of, you know, I guess niche group then gets to have a disproportionate influence on what we see as valuable. And Keegan, and, sorry, uh, you, you saying the word utility is reminding me of a conversation or conversations we've had in the past where I believe you said something like, there's a misconception that economics is about is entirely about money and that it's not actually about money it's about measuring utility and money is kind of our best way of doing that so that's generally generally people end up talking about money is that a, f a good uh rendition of, of how you feel about things yeah yeah i would say that that's kind of the point i'm trying to make is just we use money so interchangeably with the notions of value and utility that we often conflate the two to the point where we actually think that, you know, the price of something is a reflection of its value. But we know that's not that it's not true because it's only approximate, you know, representation of value. And so I think a good starting point is just to get more people to talk about the idea that those two things are not one to one proportional. There's always going to be some sort of skew there. And part of it is skewed by, you know, what I was saying about investment markets being not perfectly competitive. Another part of it is just skewed by real and artificial scarcity. Um, but I think like that's a, a good starting point to just tease out this idea that like money is not actually value. It's just a way to get closer to value. And there's probably better alternatives for what's valuable or what's utilitous than money. Um, is happiness that? Yeah, I think happiness could potentially be a contender. And the biggest shortcomings of happiness currently is that it's, it's hard to transact in because we don't account for it well and because it, it doesn't sort of prop up the economic infrastructure that we have today. So it would have to be somewhat, you know, revolutionary to really take hold. How do you measure happiness? Yeah, so it's, it's difficult to do. I mean, it, like it's sort of, you can make an argument that's very similar to measuring value, right? You just, you start to have a conversation about what makes somebody happy or what makes somebody not happy. And then you start to evaluate like, well, how, so in economics, there's a common thing of like um, this idea of an indifference curve, which is like, how much money would I have to pay you to be indifferent to this given outcome? And then, you know, doing studies like that gets you close to the idea of how painful an event is economically by how much somebody would want to be paid to avoid it like how painful it is psychologically. So there's methods like that. I think 
to actually like put a, a numerical value on happiness though would take a lot more research than I'm currently familiar with. Like there's, there's uh, a woman at Yale who teaches like the most popular, popular undergraduate course at Yale on happiness. And she talks about like how our, our language here kind of fails us because people talk about happiness in really flippant ways. Like, you know, that movie made me pretty happy to see you or this sunny day makes me happy. And, and we talk about happiness in like in this ethereal way where like there's moments, fleeting moments of happiness. But then there's also the idea of enduring happiness, which is something that would be like the optimal target for these metrics. Because it's not you don't want to just like create a system where we're trying to make people happy in any given moment. You'd want to make like happiness a durable thing. So like uh, I read Infinite Jest recently and they talk about there's a lot of talk about drug use in many different forms and various points gets into people using their substances of choice and so one something that's coming to mind is just like people using uh opioids and just like that there's that type of escape happiness that just feels like the warmest goo like best feeling you could ever imagine etc and then like obviously that's not sustainable um i mean it's also just like you know destroying your body in various ways but you you don't want people you don't want to be shooting for some sort of short-term happiness as as obvious as that, as that might sound like there's a clear example of why you can't be doing that right yeah yeah i guess a question i have is for you guys how much of our happiness today do you think comes from like an intrinsic biological sort of natural feeling that is generated when we undergo things that we've always undergone as humans and how much of our concept of happiness is derived from like external factors that were imprinted upon us by our current you know our culture like living standards yeah our culture because like culturally different things make different people happy to a great extent and you know some things that people might say make them happy this day are things that were not always the case like somebody might say having a, a stable job makes me happy but like you know 2000 years ago that wouldn't be the case or even you know it's like a bunch of apes like obviously that's not what made us happy so what how much of that is due to like our, our biological you know instincts and how much of that is due to our culture well, can we even have this conversation without trying to gain a better understanding or gain or having some mutual uh, agreement or understanding of what happiness is and I I, I, <laughs> I don't like those words coming out of my mouth I m- more I'm trying to get at like is is happiness the feeling the good feeling you have like I'm happy when I eat a delicious ice cream sundae or is happiness thinking about the uh, thinking about some situation that you're that you are in or could be in or are going to be in that is um, appealing to you and I think that probably has more to do with cultural or at least learned ideas of of what makes you happy um so i i prashant think you're i really i want to get into your question i think it's really valuable and i think it relates to that to what i just said um but there there has to be some distinction between the the 
kind of, I guess, neurological, there's an evolutionary reason of some sort uh, for feeling good in this moment for that thing I'm experiencing happiness versus uh, I'm bringing about some sort of situation in my life that isn't necessarily making me feel those neurological things that has to do with various areas of my brain being active, but it's more like I, I like this situation that's been brought about. Do, do you guys get what I think I'm I saying? I know what you mean. Well, yeah, it's just like you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, separate like a fleeting, you know, short-term biological automatic response versus like a longer term satisfaction or contentedness with, you know, your circumstances one being more of like a, a knee-jerk reaction and the other being sort of like maybe more of like a, a higher order psychological function, you know? Like I, as a, as a high-functioning adult, can tell when something's making me more biological happy, biologically happy versus, you know, a like a, a more sort of like cultural contentedness. You know, if I eat ice cream, I'm happy biologically. Obviously, it's not solving all the problems in my life. Whereas if I you know, land a stable job or if I get into medical school, like that's not something that would, you know, typically biologically release hormones, but because I've trained my brain to do so, it might, but it kind of begs the question, like is long-term biological happiness even possible? Like it's not even healthy to, to, you know, experience a dopamine rush in your brain 20, you know, a hundred percent of the time. So when we're talking about like a longer term, you know, cultural happiness, something that we're trying to measure through this, you know, happiness index or something, what does that actually look like? Obviously, it's not going to just be measure the dopamine in everybody's brain all the time and see how it goes. I mean, I guess it could be. Maybe that's a good metric for it. But yeah. And if I could add one more thing before we throw back to Keegan, because I feel like there's a lot of things we've said that he would, I want to hear him address um, whether or not he wants to. Um, but <laughs> what, who, the person that came to my mind, um, a second ago was uh, Anthony Bourdain, um, who's someone who, I mean, I didn't know a lot about him, uh, you know, when I had heard that he had committed suicide. And um, for those who don't know, uh, he's he was a world-renowned chef, and then he had his own and writer, and he uh, had his own show where he traveled the world, speaking with amazing people often culinary related but not always and uh you know of course i don't know all the details that went into the making of that show and all the deals that went to his life all i can say is that he seemed to have seemed to be in a in a have a life situation that by most people's standards was a life well lived a life well earned like he seemed to have created the circumstances for long-term happiness for himself and yet he was depressed and um without getting into a conversation about depression and how like you know there are just there can be chemical imbalances in the brain that can uh result in in one feeling depressed regardless of their circumstances don't you guys think there's something to be said for this, like creating circumstances that look like long-term happiness and yet not being happy in the moment 
or moment to moment anyway. I think David Foster Wallace experienced yes that as no. well. I mean, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, but Anthony Bourdain also had a disease. I think you have to just throw that one in there. Like, it's possible to be in a perfectly pleasant circumstance in terms of, you know, societal standards, but still be depressed. I think there's a difference between having depression and not being happy. I mean, obviously, having depression can cause you to not be happy, but not being happy doesn't mean you're depressed. I think Anthony Bourdain had great circumstances, and it's possible that if he didn't have major depression disorder, he would have been a perfectly happy person. But it is it is true, your point, to say that just solely circumstance doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. There's a lot of factors at play. Mental health is a, you know, is something that you would almost necessarily need to be healthy mentally in order to be happy, or at least as happy as any person could feasibly be, you know, in terms of just like our current understanding of it. Yeah, and I think all that to... I think all of this is just to say um, that I think the concept of happiness, while it feels familiar to all of us, is extremely confusing. And that relationship between, between what should make us happy, when we feel happy, um, and why, uh, it's... I find very, um, I find it to be a rabbit hole that I'm not very sure about. So I, I guess to throw it back to Keegan, um, where do you think that these kind of questions of happiness fit into happiness accounting, um, or, you know, shooting towards creating a, an economy in a sense based around maximizing happiness of some sort. Yeah. And I, I think like there's, a, there's always going to be a trap anytime you have like a maximizing function, right? It's like the fear of the the AI that's told to maximize production of paper clips and figures out that the best way to do it is to like, you know, wipe out a continent or something. <laughs> um, so I think, like, I don't know that the goal is necessarily to maximize happiness at the expense of something else, but to incorporate happiness into the way that we price things. Like, okay. And this is, by the way, I, I feel like I have like a lecturing tone right now. This is not like a theory that I fleshed out perfectly. These are just thoughts I have. Nothing wrong with that. After like going for a run or something. Um, like an example I like to go to is the idea of externalities. So in a nutshell, an externalities an economics term typically that describes the consequences of a transaction that affects people who were not party to the transaction. So like you, Eli, you and I decide that, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay you for a hundred pounds of coal and you're going to give me that coal and I'm going to burn it in my, you know, power plant. And then the people in the neighborhood where my power plant is located experience acid rain as a result of transaction, they had no control over the externality in this case is the acid rain. And something I think is like, undeniably true is that happiness like damage to happiness is almost always an externality like like decisions are made all the time that are punitive to other people's happiness and they have no agency over whether or not it lands upon them and so you know something that we do to try to control the pollution aspect of externalities is we price things so there's pollution taxes or there's carbon caps and we try to price in that pollution so that when people are making a decision as to whether or not to do something they're aware of the full expense of what they're doing. Um, and you could kind of like to make this more relatable, maybe to the average person, think about like what a pair of Nike shoes costs. 
And consider the fact that a pair of those shoes can only cost, let's say, $100 because we are not pricing in the suffering involved in the production of those shoes. Right. Right. We price in like the raw material goods and their labor, but the labor is priced at a point that would never be allowed to be priced at that point if happiness were to enter the equation. Understood. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, you know, that's the thing is like when the moment you start talking about pricing and happiness, a, a common outcome is going to be that everything becomes much, much more expensive because this is like the, the sad truth is that a lot of what we enjoy in this world is cheap and disposable comes as the result of suffering. And the moment you try to incorporate suffering into the price, you know, it goes, it goes out the window. Like this is maybe getting into the weeds, but something that blew my mind recently is the, the like prevalence of child slave labor in the production of cocoa and like cacao and, and everything that goes into like every major chocolate product that you could possibly imagine. And it's, it's like a rampant problem that has been talked about for a long time. And uh, there's actually two senators that proposed some legislation um, that was intercepted off the Senate floor by a big lobbyist group and kind of co-opted to be something it wasn't. Um, but the outcome was that large cocoa manufacturers, Hershey's in the sort, were required to start removing slave labor from their supply chain. And this was initially enacted in 2005. And they've asked for a three-year extension every single time the three years have, has come up. And still to this day, they've basically made no progress on removing the slave labor from their production lines. And the reason is it would just be more expensive. Like, that's the simple truth. They would have to charge more for chocolate. And so because American children are entitled to cheap chocolate made by the slave labors of children overseas, nothing will change. And I guess, like, for the average American, they're, first of all, probably not even aware that that's the case. And they also, even if they were aware, likely wouldn't change their behavior all that much unless they were priced into doing so. Mm. It's like, you know, is it punitive in a sense to price and happiness because things become more expensive? Yes, but usually that's going to guide better behavior. So it's not that we like necessarily have to do away with money. It's just that the price of something has to be influenced by the happiness consequences therein. Okay, so then we have clear consequences through this approach i, I mean if, well, positive if you, and negative consequences okay but, for american children have to spend more in okay but it, but positive it's the consequences for slave children but it's a, being produced, no longer having to be slaves i agree but this is a that's a very negative or it's a very narrow lens um i'm thinking of the the i'm I, i'm not finding good words right now i'm thinking of uh, what's often talked about with processed foods and the fact that the people who can afford the foods that are healthier um, are more are wealthy and so then they are more healthy which means that their health costs are lower um, it's like if we're if things are becoming more expensive because they're uh, because the it's costing more based off of the suffering that goes into making those things, which like, let me be clear. I, I, I want to find a solution to that problem. Then, then people are not going to be able to afford anything. It seems. So I guess like, where do you go from there? But chocolate's not. Okay. But it's not just chocolate. Prashant. It's meat. It's dairy. It's everything. Yeah. I think, it is not true that people would not be able to afford anything because 
like okay the, the most pure case would just be subsistence existence like there are people in this world who grow their own food eat it and as a result there's there's no direct like suffering component because they're the ones who are putting in the labor to produce the product that they then consume mm-hmm. so they're, they're you know governors over their own amount of suffering and whether or not they think it's worth it so that would be like the most extreme case obviously that's not like something that's scalable or could be proposed as like a, a new course of action for all of human society but there are, you're right like there would be things that would become prohibitively expensive for people to have like just as like a daily staple but i think like this is this is I mean, this is like a, a huge conversation to have, but it is just a fact that there are so many things that we take as like entitlements, mm-hmm. things that we are entitled to have if you make above minimum wage in this country that are only that because of massive market distortions. Like, you know, with dairy and meat, it's because the government subsidizes the production to a, a very significant extent. And we can talk about whether or not that's good. With chocolate, it's because the entire production line is subsidized by slave labor. When we can talk about whether or not that's good. Um, and you know, the list goes on and on and on. And I guess the the question would just be what, what would actually be the total like redistribution of utility if we were to stop that? Like, let's take the example of chocolate. If chocolate were like, if all slave labor would be, were, were to be removed from chocolate tomorrow in just like the most blunt way possible, you just literally, all those kids are rescued. They no longer have to work in those slave fields. Who knows what happens to them after the fact, but they're no longer slaves working on these fields. Yeah, the immediate consequence would be chocolate becomes ridiculously expensive. Like, you know, that weird organic chocolate bar that's $12 at Whole Foods becomes the cheapest option. And most Americans would no longer be consuming chocolate like they do. And that would... Well, right. But no, because the thing, so that would reduce utility. Chocolate companies that were employing many people in the United States would fire them you know, using the claim that they can no longer afford to employ them. And, you know, but you would, you'd have to outweigh that loss of utility against, you know, these children gaining their freedom. Not to mention that certain companies would have to then reckon for the losses that they're undergoing. You know, so like, for example, Nestle. Nestle engages in a lot of very damaging practices all over the world in terms of their products. And losing, a, a, you know, free slave labor, first of all, that's good. And I think that's worth a lot in terms of, okay, maybe people in the United States lose their jobs. That's unfortunate, but if we're trying to build a culture of where corporations are held responsible for their actions, that's a good thing, right? And it's possible to build towards a world in which all corporations understand the consequences of their actions and are looking out more for the benefits of their people than they are their you know, bottom line. It's true that if people lost their jobs in America, that's bad. And if things are more expensive in America, that's possibly bad. In the example of chocolate, I don't think it's that bad because, you know, it's it's chocolate. It's technically a luxury item. Like, it doesn't matter if we have less chocolate in the United States. Like, it's not going to cause that many issues, you know? Now, if you were to, you know, target a more staple food in terms of our diet, then, yeah, it's a bigger deal. But you're solving a huge problem. And so you you have to ask the question, what's what in terms of happiness, what is our happiness quotient in this case? You know, how do you measure the happiness of, children gaining their freedoms back versus people in the United States losing what is probably their livelihood and also losing a luxury item in the process or not losing it, but having to pay more. Yeah. And also if you start doing this, don't you also start having to factor in not just the happiness that is affected by the slave laborers um, on the production line, but also 
the happiness that's affected by the effects of climate change by transporting those goods across um, continents and um, the list goes on and on as to like these what do you call it externalizations um, Externality. externalities uh, it's a complicated formula and it's not that I don't think the formula could be made I just don't I, and I'm also like, I don't know, I've adopted this tone of like, I don't think this is possible. And that's not what I want at all. I'm just like trying to wrap my head around, like, where do we go from here? How do we start towards making these things happen that I think we all agree? And I think all, all like kind of people who take a second to think about these things agree, like we need to stop all these things, at the very least slave labor, but there are many other things. We need to stop these things that in a lot of ways our economies are powered by, but like where do we go from here when it's just like obscenely confusing? Well, so so let's agree, I think, as a group of three, we're not going to answer that in, in this podcast. Okay, I agree. Like, I agree. That's okay. I think, oh man. I think societally we have this aversion to like wading into problems where the answer is not obvious. Like this, something that drives me nuts is that it's, it's political suicide for a presidential candidate to point out a problem that they don't have a solution for. That's, that is a huge, that is a fundamental. That's so strange too, because there's such a culture of pointing out problems without having solutions for them. Well, so there's that and there's complaining. I think there's, there's a distinction there, right? Like there's, Okay, like, let's take the idea of, I don't know, something simple, like a, a child in a family complaining about how, you know, messy the house is, but making no effort to clean it up. That That's not really evaluating a problem and like what causes it and what could be done to solve it. That's just complaining about a situation they don't like. Then there's this idea of like really doing a detailed analysis of what a problem is, finding out who it affects, knowing that you don't have an answer, but just like doing the, the histology of the problem, I guess, if we were going to use a medical analogy and sorry somebody needed the cheese it's i guess here's what i'm saying like there we do have a culture of complaining emptily with no real like gumption about fixing something but that's distinct to me from the problem of like political leaders thought leaders and other individuals not being permitted the latitude to like talk about a problem that they don't have a solution for it but that's kind of like putting us in this this inevitable trap where the very serious problems never get talked about because nobody could see the answer right around the corner so I think like we should give ourselves the permission to just talk about a problem and admitting that we probably will not develop the solution, but like, that's not a good reason to just not talk about the problem. Yeah. So I, I would definitely, I absolutely agree that, um, in game a, um, the, I guess because of confusions between actual utility and money and thus co cost co uh, cost cutting um s like so many people are forgotten about disregarded their happiness their life their lives are not valued um so i definitely agree and i just uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, like what so so then I guess no. So I understand like we don't need to talk about we spent a lot of time talking in the past about like what would it take to have a major regime change um type thing or a paradigm shift. Uh but so instead of talking about that, I'll ask like, okay, how would you start 
um, trying to apply the the regarding people's happiness um, as our utility value uh, rather than what we're doing now. Well, okay, I think I think in, I don't want to say easy. It wouldn't be easy, but I think the the lowest hanging fruit would be a universal bill of rights. Because here, here's like going back to the coffee example. What happens in the United States is assuming that justice gets carried through, which is an assumption, but I would say we have a decent hit rate in that regard. If justice gets carried through in the United States, if somebody is like subjected to slave labor, then not only will, we, will there be criminal proceedings and whoever's responsible will you know, hopefully go to jail. There's, there's usually a civil suit involved where whoever is responsible has to pay that person for their emotional damages, has to pay that person for their foregone wages, has to pay that person for a whole host of things. Imagine if that were true, no matter where you were in the world. Like if you were to take advantage of somebody in that way, you would have to pay the economic and criminal damages. The only reason that this slave labor can exist in places like, you know, West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is because there's not a universal bill of rights in place. And so American corporations can do to people over there what they would never be able to do to people here and not pay for it. So it's like we, we already know how much it costs, like but we have somewhere there's a legal precedent for, you know, wrongful enslavement and how much they should be paid. This could enter into a conversation about reparations. But it, there, somebody's done the pricing on that and we could debate you know the nuance of that. But we know that it costs something. and We know that those people deserve to be made whole. And it's not like this grand leap. You go, well, how would we accurately? It's just like, no, it's it's an intentional obfuscation because those people are not being seen as deserving of having those same rights. So I think starting with a universal bill of rights would be a great place. And obviously like that's, you know, some people see that as an impossibility, but I think having this conversation more make it much clearer as to why. Yeah. It's it's, a universal bill of rights is a great idea and worthy of one or multiple idea garden episodes. But uh, I don't know. I'd be happy to talk more through that if you think that's valuable, but I, I agree. I think that's that's a huge deal and something I haven't been thinking about is like, oh, like where our constitution has, you know, has all these these rights that we're entitled to. And then we get all these benefits that uh, kind of as a result of those rights not being um, available to people around the world. That's that's bonkers. Yeah. And so then I think another step that should be taken is like, I, I don't know if there's a, a nice succinct phrase for it, but something in along the lines of proportional punishment. Like I think a good example is everyone pays the same fine. If they're speeding, everyone pays the same fine if they park in the wrong place. And that's just not a good vehicle for justice because those fines hit different people very differently. So it's like this, this sense that like, there's a, there's a standard sentencing. If you rob a convenience store, there should be a standard punitive sentencing, uh, sentencing if you violate someone financially, and that should be proportional to how much money you have. So, you know, on an individual level, I should be getting a greater fine than somebody who is much more impoverished than me. And on a even bigger level, corporations who violate these clauses should be getting a fine that is proportional to their, their like economic value. Because a huge problem in, in global, you know, corporations is that they'll be fined for a behavior and it is simply better for them to just eat the fine and proceed than it is to change anything about what they're doing. Yeah. So, 
Like, that's like a very real problem that happens all the time. And, you know, part of that is because of political lobbying efforts that ensure the fund are never great enough to actually have any, like, binding power. But I think you know, that, that would be another area where a lot of progress could be made. Because, you know, if the ultimate goal is to somehow do away with the necessity for, like, currency as we know it today and to move towards some better proxy for value, we might as well, on the way there, use money for what it's good for, which is like directing behavior towards the optimal outcome. And as long as we can price in happiness accordingly, we can get much closer to a real optimum than where we are now. I see. And it's like, I, here's the thing is, I it sounds kind of crazy to be like, well, we need a universal bill of rights and like people need to actually pay for the crimes that they commit. Like those are all obvious statements, but I think it's easy to forget that like this, most of like, what we consider power structures today are entirely predicated on a lot of things that are not like the laws of physics. They're just decisions that were made and that are, have been carried forward because they're convenient. Amen. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, yeah, there's an opportunity here to just revisit that with a fresh take. And I think, you know, it's very, I mean, what is a greater juxtaposition than the idea of like a bunch of American children celebrating Easter eating candy that was procured by other children in a different land that have never celebrated anything like Easter. Yeah, like, it's that's a great place to start because I, I think we can pretty much get everyone on board with that. Now, here's the problem, right? There's that whole idea of like out of sight, out of mind. People aren't going to pay attention if they aren't made to. And we have a great infrastructure for making people pay attention, which is the price of things. And if we were to price in that externality, we would see a real change in behavior. And if people were like, why the fuck is a bar of chocolate $10? They would probably they'd get pissed off, right? People would be really upset. Why is a Hershey's bar all of a sudden $10? And then somebody could be there and go, well, it's because now it's not being made with slave labor. And, and here's the thing, like that's you know, th there's obviously a lot of potential downstream consequences to that, but the simple outcome would be a direct connection between how much something costs and how much suffering was put into it. Is there like a is there a product or a service that people provide that should not be priced as it is worth? If that makes sense, like should not price in the suffering. Well, not not suffering. Like I don't think any product should be made with suffering, but. Is there a product that needs to be like? I think maybe, for example, corn. Like corn doesn't cause any suffering when it's made. Maybe to the environment it does, but it almost has to be subsidized because otherwise we'd be able to put enough corn to feed, you know, the United States of America, for example. Let's say we produced all the food that we ate. Well, like, is there a product that has to like is not worth the happiness that it brings, or that is worth too much compared to the happiness that it brings, and therefore needs to be subsidized or priced higher? Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't think, at least in the United States, corn isn't a great example because we export a lot of corn, which means we're producing more than we need already. And right. okay, so so I mean, yeah, I, I would I'll I'll grant you that like those I'm certain those sorts of products exist, but I think that subsidization can be achieved by willing participation, right? Like I don't have a problem if people want to like have some sort of wealth transfer that's transparent and we're being clear about why we're doing it. The problem is when like Americans enjoy a two dollar chocolate bar, but they're completely ignorant to the reason it's only two dollars. Right. Like like that that's I think like the real insidious aspect of this. It's it's not that we've all weighed the moral like we aren't moral arbiters here who have gone like you know what yes Easter must go on, and so the chocolate will flow. Like we're not you know crazy Willy Wonka. People just don't know, and they don't know because I mean many things, but like because the bill that was originally introduced and then swept off the Senate floor by lobbyists was going to propose 
a label that would be put on chocolate indicating whether or not slave labor was part of their production because they didn't want that information to be transparent because they knew it would affect who purchased their chocolate. So, I mean, this is actually a really nice case study, right? These companies know that if people knew about the slave labor, they would stop buying their chocolate. They also know that if they just increased their price and their competitors were not forced to, people would not buy their chocolate. So they're just operating in their own perverse best interests. And the role that we should all take is like individuals who have a voice is to drive the narrative towards something that creates binding behavior, whether that means, you know, actually stamping out the production involving slave labor, thereby causing prices to go up and then driving American thoughts on it, or by creating some sort of, you know, legislation that forces people to have that badge on their chocolate and then people will react accordingly and stop buying it. Like that, that's a nice, succinct example of like how you could start approaching these problems by incorporating the idea of happiness and suffering into pricing. And that's also a good one because like sometimes, you know, there's the argument that a sweatshop isn't really a sweatshop. Sometimes a sweatshop is a place of opportunity for people who otherwise didn't have any. And that like, you know, you can kind of get into this whole narrative about how, yes, you're, we're paying them far less than you would ever pay an American. And if you were to pay an American that much it would be a gross miscarriage of justice. But in their situation, it's actually a just wage. And this is a good opportunity for them. And we benefit, you know, sort of like how trade is a is a tide that raises all ships. Like there are probably corner cases where that is true. But I think those cases would still remain if we were to price in happiness, if you see what I'm saying. Like, you know, if, if you really believe that trade is good for both for all parties, then just add happiness to the equation and nothing should really change. But if you yeah. add happiness, all of a sudden your trade war gets really, you know, distorted, then you've learned something. You've learned that your suppositions about this being good for people is not actually true. I guess that's what I was asking earlier. Is is there an example where pricing something with happiness would be removing opportunity? But I don't think that's actually the case because whether or not it does remove opportunity somewhere, the net benefit is going to be increased and that opportunity is being moved to probably a more useful or even a more fair and just you know method. But the issue is always when we talk about these sorts of things, like how do we get there? I mean, examples like voting with your dollar, if we wanted to stop slave labor in the chocolate industry, then we would all have to stop buying chocolate that was produced with slave labor. But that's hard. Right. You know, well, it's, it's hard to even figure out who is and who isn't because of intentional yeah. obligation. But it's also hard just because, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and it's more expensive. And But so, so here's, I think, the, the most common argument against this, excluding slave labor, because I think it's, it's impossible to argue, you know, in favor of that. Um, what about states' rights? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, we, we could go there. But I, I think, like, here's the thing, like, in the sweatshop example, the argument that a lot of economists will make is that those people are accepting that wage, right? Some people looked at that wage and said, no, it's not worth it. That job is not worth that wage. It's, they have done the own, they've done the help, happiness calculation for themselves. I, now, we go for it. I, I'm just, I wanted to add one thing that I recently heard from a social studies teacher um, at the school I work at, which is that when we're critical of things like sweatshops, uh, these slave labor type situations in other countries, um, in what are referred to now as developing countries, although I know some people who are not fond of that terminology even, um, so I'm not exactly sure what the best thing to call them is, but in countries where their economies are um, in this sort of industrial stage uh, prior to the stage that we're in now, uh, 
that being in this, like getting this business, like having us buy those products that we're talking about as being detrimental to people's happiness, that is su- supporting these economies, allowing for them to transition from this stage to a um, better stage in their economic history. So I I don't know if I've conveyed that argument in its best light, but as far as I understood, there are certainly nuances to talking about doing away with <laughs> this slave labor. Um, not that I, I really don't want to be seen as advocating for it. I'm just saying, like, I've heard that argument, and I guess I wonder, like, what are the opportunities? I know that they should be, I know the opportunities should be, like, hey, if someone's going to be helping produce chocolate in the U.S., then they're going to have all these rights and they're going to get this wage, et cetera, et cetera. So those things should be occurring in other countries. That goes back to the universal Bill of Rights idea. But in, I don't know, in that, in the meantime, are those people going to, are those economies, those countries, are those people going to lose their ability to uh, support themselves and to grow um, without these things occurring? Yeah, so I think you articulated that really well. And I think that is like the most common claim against this is that in a lot of places, the the economic backbone is just like very low level manufacturing. That very low level manufacturing was only put there because it's cheaper to do it there than it is to do it here. If you were to price in their happiness in whatever way that we're proposing, it would become as expensive to do it there as it is here. And we would just move things back to the States which is good for manufacturing in the States, but very bad for those economies. Like, I think that is like a point that's often made. Like it's bad for the U S consumer and it's bad for the manufacturers overseas. And I think like that you could make that argument. Like certainly today there are plenty of economies that are very much based around that. Like a lot of textile producing countries rely on this very cheap labor to like back up their whole economy. But that again, that's like, that's not a fundamental law of physics. That's not like the Indonesian culture is not destined to be textile manufacturers. Absolutely not. Right? There's not some great myth of the textile gods and how like that was their people's role. And so I think like, is it the case that today we have found the opportunity to like build up economic scale there to the point where it's very cheap to produce? Of course. But that that is like a, a static view on it. The dynamic view would be there's a there's an opportunity to transition into other things as well. And that like there would be less economic surplus in the short run by doing this because you'd have to like make investments to retrofit things and to give people more education and and, like, you know, everything that goes along with nation building as kind of complicated as that term is. But I don't think I don't think it's a good argument to say like because here's the thing in the case of a sweatshop when you're saying like what's it's supporting the, the economy there. You have to ask, like, is it supporting the individuals within the economy or is it supporting the people at the top of the economy who have networked in with foreign nations and have the capital to open up these factories and employ their own people? It's I don't think it's so clear that it's actually supporting the ground level individual in a way that they wouldn't have been able to support themselves. Yeah, I I don't I don't necessarily think so either, except maybe just the devil's advocate position of given that these things are the case and that's those are the skills that people are 
being trained with or or perhaps looking at in the negative light those are um like they're not getting they're not getting the opportunity to be trained in other skills that would allow them to uh have have a healthier way of making a living then maybe that's the only option that they have right now i don't know this is territory that i i'm I don't know. Eli, I'm hesitant to speak on because I feel like my my understanding of it isn't good enough, and I risk saying something in, like not good. Yeah, no, it's I mean, increased trade for an industry, and that industry is taken away. Yeah, obviously those people are going to suffer, but any any fundamental change like this is going to require change more on just a single scale. If you take away an industry, you have to replace it with something else, and those people have to be trained with that. But that's still going to be positive in the long run, even if it causes a short term deficit to their economy you know the only reason these people are trained in that way to begin with is probably like colonialism right i mean they had skills and then other people came in and changed their skills and then forced them to adapt their skills to be beneficial to whatever country colonized them yeah of this, course i i agree actually be undoing that and undoing that has its problems obviously in the short term but it's not a bad thing. Yeah, no, I completely agree it's not a bad thing. I, I, I completely agree that it's not a bad thing. I think the only reason I... Well, one, I think I wanted to give... Like, make sure I was putting out, like, what are the oppositional arguments. And the second thing is, talking about this a little more in depth, I think we we realize another nuance that needs to be fleshed out if if this type of change that i absolutely agree is needed to make this world better um it's just like another thing that there needs to be a plan for how are we going to support the economies that are currently built around this bad system (laughs) that's that benefits uh wealthy nations and people yeah you're right it's something that has to be considered because if it's forgotten it could lead to just another collapse in that country's economy. And so the podcast ends. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Idea Garden. This was episode three. And I'm going to go cry in a corner now. <laughs> I, no, I, I don't think there's anything to cry about. I think this is a really good conversation. And like it highlights some of the difficult aspects of this conversation, which is I think we place a burden of of proof and a burden of like solution on talking about these things that we wouldn't put on most other issues, right? Like, yeah, we're talking about it, the three of us trying to figure out, okay, if we were to shut down a sweatshop in Bangladesh, let's say, and then try to back subsidize to support that economy, how would we do it? Would it be good in the short term? Would it be good in the long term? And like, what does that mean for Americans here? That's a very difficult thing to just hash out in your head over the internet. And I think, like, it's okay to point out that the situation is fucked up without also immediately being able to provide an answer to make it better. I think it's like the scientific process is something similar to this, which is there are people who, who will publish a report discovering a new molecule that has shown up in the lungs and seems to be related to different pathologies, but they don't know how, and all they're doing is characterizing that molecule. And then someone will pick up the torch where they left it, and they'll take a little bit further to show how that molecule interacts with the the interstitial space between cells and somebody will pick that up and you know somewhere 10 inches down the road there are whole papers that are just collections of characterized proteins in their crystal structures so that other people can use them or really at the 
these day and age, they just run those crystal structures through simulations to see if there's even a possibility of that molecule being involved in whatever process they're interested in. You're absolutely yeah. right in saying that sometimes the most important thing you can do for a problem is just highlight its existence. You know, you don't have to solve it, just make it aware. Right. And, and I think like, we, I mean, basic science is notoriously underfunded in the U.S. It doesn't, it's not benefited by private investment and it's almost solely relying on government funding and there's never enough. And that's an indication of how we think about things. We tend to really privilege the final step over the first or the middle or the 50th, you know, any other step. The final step is always the one that like gets the, the lion's share of the reward. I would call into question whether or not that's actually a good way to organize society, but it does. It manifests in basic science and I think it manifests in problem solving because people tend to not want to hear or to engage with problems that don't present immediate solutions. It's why if you're a president and you name a problem and you don't immediately follow it up with how you intend to solve it, you're screwed. And that, that it like that spills over into like many, many areas. Like that's a societal thing. It's like a virus that gets onto your computer and then screws up the way it operates. Like that virus of there must be an answer if we're going to talk about this meaningfully, I think is is one of the most insidious things in American society today. So I think it's good. Like, I think we're doing literally a public service as self-indulgent as that sounds, just talking about this and throwing it against the wall to see if it sticks. And we use an example that I think a lot of people might not be aware of, slave labor in the chocolate industry. I mean, that's a huge issue. Yeah, and I mean, for anyone who may listen to this, don't just take, like, go look this up. There's copious amounts of evidence of this. There's also great evidence about how they've postponed their supposed efforts over and over and over for a lot of very nefarious reasons i have to also imagine there are foundations that are attempting to do things or are doing things but it's like i don't know it's like trying to chip ice out of mount everest um it's a lot but yeah, it's well, like it, shout out to those people well there's a lot of chocolate companies that are specifically coming about to make sure that they're sourcing the chocolate responsibly they're partnering with the farmers and the plantations in these areas they actually go there, right? They, they invest the money and time to ensure that the labor practices are sound. And then they, they price their chocolate. According, like, as much as I kind of love to hate on like the hippie pricing of some products where you're like, this is ludicrous. It's often a reflection of a good faith effort to do the right thing. So yeah. you can go with your dollar and you can support foundations that are trying to contend with this. And you can also just talk about the problem. It's so interesting. I, I, <laughs> I had like this, you guys know I'm Jewish. I don't even celebrate Easter, and but I'm like living with someone right now whose family got into it, and they're yeah, like, or is into it, and yeah. So anyway, they gave me a bunch of Easter chocolate, and I, I don't know, I eat a little bit now and then. I hadn't eaten any of the eggs yet, but then I ate two of the chocolate eggs earlier today, and you know, really had that that essence of this was chocolate that was not made with love, <laughs> and. um I'm just, I just, I've just been thinking about that the entire time we've had been having this conversation. Like, oh my god, I completely partook in that today, and I think I do in ways I rarely think about every day. Uh, it's, it's why it, slave children. What? It's made of the tears of slave children. Yeah. Well, I was gonna. I said I was gonna say it. I almost said right after that, and that's why it's hard to be an American. But like that is, <laughs> is like the most ironic thing. It's. It's not hard to be us because we benefit from these horrible things going on in the world. Like, we should be making use of the fact that we have it so much, e not all Americans, but many, and people in our position have it so, like, have these things so easy for us and are given all these rights that we can see 
how many choices we have in in like you know that are positive for this world or negative or supporting like good causes or bad causes and take that time to to do something about it i know and i felt um as a vegetarian that like these there and and as a vegetarian who has learned that like the choice i made to be a vegetarian is barely doing anything considering that i consume dairy like i know that it just is it seems like too much most of the time that you'll never feel like you're doing enough but what comes to mind is what keegan likes to say which is don't abandon good in pursuit of perfect and so trying to do something is better than doing nothing because the problem on the whole seems too overwhelming yeah and i think like one of the the key pursuits movements whatever it's something that we should all be trying to do is make good behavior the default option right like it's always it's unreasonable to expect the human just human brain the way that our dopamine you know responses work it's unreasonable to expect people to just always be the best moral arbiters in a situation and pick the right thing over the easy thing like that's just it's not a good expectation you're going to lose that bet most times but if you just make the good behavior default it's it's amazing how much compliance you'll get and i think like one of the problems we have is people often like to talk about the way things are like in a capitalist system in the United States as a manifestation of human nature. Like it's look, I mean, it's human nature for people to not care about people who are not in their personal life. It's human nature for people to want what's good for them and not what's good for others. And like we kind of hand wave and talk about human nature in a way that I don't think is very scientific. When in reality, it's like how much joy do people actually get out of the chocolate that isn't made with love? Do we get enough joy to offset the amount of like suffering that is impaled in that? And I would say the answer is no, but I don't think we get as much joy as we think we do. Like there are trained psychologists and teams of advertising experts who are constantly working to try to try to signal more value than there actually is in whatever product or service they're offering to the point where like, think about TurboTax. TurboTax is a company that exists explicitly because it prohibits the U S government from making taxing uh, the process of filing taxes easier. It's been proposed countless times to refine the process to be much more similar to other nations, to make it so every American could do it online simply with one form, and it gets shut down by lobbying efforts from organizations such as TurboTax and others because that's their business model. Their business model is to create a false sense of like complexity that then they can be predatory over. So I, I would say like a really important thing for us all to do is pay attention and try to observe the number of times where like the way something manifests in our in our society is just a manifestation of human behavior or if it's a manifestation of like an intentional manipulation of the circumstances like do kids really love chocolate that much like if they never saw an ad for like a hershey's thing would they crave it in the way that they do and i think like you know that that spirals upwards and it has more significance elsewhere but that's an important question to ask and and that's i think something that would fall into the game B architecture as well, which is just like getting closer to the real value of things and not just like taking the narrative as it is. Have I, have I like gone off the deep end? I don't know. I like that. No, you, you haven't. I was, I was just thinking in my head whether I should bring up my meritocracy thing again or not. Like I, I, somebody, I read this somewhere. I don't even remember where it's been a long time now, but like they were talking about how, how amazing the world would be if we could somehow get the groups of people who say they want to make the world a better place and the groups of people who say they want to make a, the world a better place for me to like recognize that they kind of want to do the same thing. It's just, 
it's just a certain group believes that they have to do it at the expense of others. Like everybody wants to make the world a better place. It's just a lot of us want to make it a better place for me specifically or for themselves specifically. And it's just interesting, right? Like, is it, is it necessarily the case? Like is scarcity so real that for, for that group to do what they want, it has to be at the expense of others. Well, I think in certain contexts for certain people, yeah, for certain people in, in certain contexts, scarcity for them is so real that they have to do something at the expense of others. But the result or the, the fact that there are people in those situations comes down to what they're, you know, to scarcity that probably doesn't exist on a larger scale. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 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 it totally does. It's like, I, I like to think about in terms of gravity, like there is a gravitational constant. We all experience the same gravity on the planet Earth, by and large. You know, I mean, if you go to the top of Mount Everest, it's slightly different than elsewhere, but the same gravity. But if somebody were born and we put like a 10 pound plate in their backpack, and never told them about it, they'd walk around thinking that they're experiencing a different kind of gravity. And I think like as a society, we have structured things such that there are certain people who are experiencing a real scarcity, but it's like a locally real scarcity. It's not something that's, you know, extant. It doesn't just exist out there in the universe. It's been manufactured and then they respond to that. Their human nature, what they're responding to are two separate things, I guess is what I would say. I, like, I just really like having this conversation. It's been, I feel like I'm getting woke <laughs> for the first time in my life in many ways, just learning about game B because I used to think, oh, well, the slave trade in chocolate is distinct from what TurboTax is doing, is distinct from the idea of an externality, is distinct. And I just saw them as all these separate problems. But it, I found that it's like really helpful to start to see these as fundamentally the same problem, just showing up in many different areas. And could you put a name on, could you put a, a sentence or two on that fundamentally same problem? Yeah, I, well, I think it would just be, we see things as rivalrous. Like, it's, I don't know, I would need to think about this more to like wordsmith it nicely, but those, those chocolate companies aren't doing that because they like slave labor, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're not getting utility from the suffering. They're getting utility from the economic gains that they make by selling the most chocolate. And they figured out that you can sell more chocolate by making it less expensive. And so they're doing that. And they're just not valuing the, the costs that those other people are experiencing. So like, it's, it's just this rivalrous nature of like, I have to sell more chocolate than the other person because that does get me more economic reward. And that economic reward I have been told and conditioned to believe gets me more happiness. And here's the crazy thing is like, science has pretty resoundingly shown that more money does not equal more happiness. Like there's something called the Easterland paradox, which is relative performance between two nations. Like one nation that has a higher GDP per capita than the other is more likely to mean that the higher GDP nation is happier. But that over time, accumulating more GDP does nothing for the happiness of that nation. So, like, this is a, a thing that economists have been grappling with since the 70s, which is like, well, why is that the case? Why, like, if, if it's sort of like what doctors have known for a long time, like, if a little bit is good, that doesn't mean a lot is great. It means a lot might kill you. And, like, if a little bit of, of economic prosperity is good, it doesn't mean that a lot is also good. But we have this problem where everything is centered around a production function that's just set to optimize profit. Because we, some, for God knows what reason, believe that if a little profit is good, a great profit must be fucking amazing. And it's just like, I don't think there's any good evidence to indicate that that's true. And, but we all like, we suckle at that teeth, dude. And 
I don't know. I think like there's, there's a great opportunity in our generation in particular, because I think we have a lot of people who are questioning the status quo to do something about this, to like start to propose alternatives and to not necessarily have the answer, but to, to just start teasing out the problems. And I think one problem is we don't have a good proxy for value. Money does a decent job, but we don't price in everything necessary to make money do a great job. So we either need to make money much better as a proxy for value, or we need to propose alternatives. And like, I don't know. I think it's, it's interesting because for a long time in the U S at least this changes. If you talk about the whole world, there was a notion that like every generation was getting access to more economic opportunity to, than the generation before them. And that's starting to become evident. Like it's not true that our generation has experienced more wealth transfers from the young to the elderly than any before. Most people today can make more money than their parents did and still have less purchasing power. And so the illusion is, is kind of decaying and that's giving us an opportunity to really start to poke holes in it and to show that like this, this endless growth isn't real. Like it's propped up by one taking advantage of other people in a way that most people in our generation would not be okay with. And two subsidies and kind of just intentional manipulation to the point where like we just live in a, a constant state of bubbles. It's difficult. How do you, how do you still go about your life knowing all of these different things and teasing out these problems and not just get overwhelmed by how much shittiness there is in the world? I mean, my method is just to literally see myself as like a storybook character and thinking like, if this was going to be the exposition to my story, that like this is way better than the exposition that just goes, life was good and it was getting better. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually had right. a somewhat similar thought to that, Keegan. Just that like... Yeah, you want some you want some interesting rising action. <laughs> you don't want to just I don't know. I mean, there's the Chinese proverb of of uh, or not proverb or just like thing that people say to those they don't like, which is "May your ancestors live in interesting times" or something like that. This is actually a misquotation of an expression people in America think is a Chinese curse, but actually the only known similar Chinese expression is from Fang Menglong, who wrote, better to be a dog in times of tranquility than a human in times of chaos. At the same time, like, perhaps if we don't really know what the meaning of life is, then perhaps things being complex and confusing and even scary at times is and thus interesting um is better than complete uh utopian living i don't know that's a big philosophical question that i i'm not i don't know that's just a big philosophical question that's yeah, no, all i'll say is. about I, it <laughs> i'm i'm grateful for my life because i can live in what i consider to be extremely interesting times and not just get totally fucked by everything. But that's not the case for everybody. And so for those people, what do they do, right? They just don't buy chocolate because it's, you know, being funded by slave labor, and then they just don't get to enjoy chocolate when it's yeah, all but they can afford. Bring it, out of, bring it out of chocolate and slave labor itself for a second. How, how do you guys think that people are supposed to reconcile the fact that the world is really hard for a lot of people but that if I, don't, I won't say in all cases but in a lot of cases if you're able to recognize that 
then you're probably in a situation where um, it's not as bad for you. And maybe that generalization I just made was a bad one. I I just mean that how do you reconcile when you know that you have things pretty easy relative to a lot of people in this world, like the fact that you that that fact um i remember when uh when we were at cedar point the first time volunteering for the uninitiated cedar point is a amusement park in sandusky ohio i had a couple of conversations with people about how like you know talking seeing people there that that was their their life their job and and being so many of us being like affluent students at a a top university like being kind of disgusted uh or or really um not happy with the jobs you were doing for one single weekend two days um of work and i you know i had conversations i remember somebody saying like i've got to make use of my of what I've been given, the fact that I'm here and that I want to go to med school and be a doctor and that that to like, from that position, do things like donate money or, or help make things happen in the world that are, that lift up people who didn't have what I had, um, or what I was given. Um, so that's, that is one, I think, way of reconciling it, but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to, so what do you guys think? Well, well, I mean, I think that's a great example, but that's where I would say, like, let's make that behavior the default. Like, rather than saying, okay, you, you know, privileged med student who has seen what Cedar Point is like. It's, yeah, I, I also, I do love that we're, we're putting Cedar Point right next to Chocolate Slave Labor. I mean, it's, <laughs> no, it's not right next to, it's just that, like, it, no, 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 it no, is no, a no, contrast. No, I actually, I don't like Cedar Point, so I'm fine with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I would say they're, like, cousins at least. Cedar Point, dude. Cedar... <laughs> Cedar Point and Chocolate Slave Labor are buddies. Um, but, no, so what I would say is, like, rather than saying, okay, so you, you know, you have this insight, you have an affluent life, and then you go and you donate, like, that's great. If you want to do that, do that. But wouldn't it be better if like those people just got paid in a way that made it so that their existence wasn't, you know, so shitty? Like, what if we just made a default? If you're going to go to Cedar Point, you're going to pay more to go there. And it's or here. Well, so here's a thing I should add to. I'm assuming everything will cost more if you just price in happiness, because generally speaking, what happens is that low level employees get taken advantage of in a very significant way because of artificial scarcity, you know, through the job market. Now, Take Cedar Point, for example. I don't. I haven't looked at Cedar Point's financial statements. I don't know what their profit margin is. But let's assume they're doing really well. They could afford to pay their employees more, keep the ticket prices at the gate the same, and simply reduce the share of profit that goes to executives and shareholders. That would be an alternative where people who want to consume Cedar Point don't experience any of the additional burden. People working at Cedar Point get sort of bailed out, so to speak. And the people who are suffering, so to speak, would be people who are already existing in a state of surplus. Now, some people go, well, like, okay, then what's the point of being super competent? Like, if our competency hierarchies don't price in performance, then we everything falls apart. We don't get to bars, and, you know, EDM sucks. <laughs> I, I, I think, like, I, I don't know, I think there's, there's many ways to motivate people beyond just money. And uh, 
I guess we we could get into that too. But yeah, I I, I just think we, we you got to make it the default. Like that that is the key with humans. Is like you're not going to get people to be so conscientious that they can hold in their hearts thousands of strangers. It's just not like that is the bodhisattva path, and it's a hard one to walk. That's a, that's a great like program to try to run on people, but most people don't have the hardware. If, to put it in technical terms, is it it's worth- much easier to just like, make some default protocol where it's like. If this, then that, always. As a brief question, um, do you think that do you think that most people don't have the hardware or the acquired software to be like that? I don't mean like innate talent or intelligence. I just mean years of training. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, but then but then my follow up to that is like, do you think it's we're talking about? I guess like ideally, you know, if we wanted these large scale changes to occur, then we need like kind of a massive overhaul, um, kind of like we talked about um, on a previous episode. But I, I, do you think you the massive overhaul is worthwhile or feasible for changing how we educate about the world to to change that like how how much compassion and and empathy uh we people can have for for the the others in this world is that do you guys think that's within our realm or does it does that actually come back to hardware and like what we're actually yes it's within our realm i mean sometimes it just comes down to cultural issues United states were very individualistic and a lot of the times our actions are are you know predicated this idea that they have to benefit us and solely us and then after we're done taking care of ourselves we can then take care of others but that's not always the case you know there's a lot of situations which you don't have to change your behavior to a large degree or at least the way in which you change your behavior doesn't affect what you're getting out of it but it can still benefit other people do you guys think you were taught in sorry prashant yeah do you guys think you were taught in life that you could pretend you could take care of yourself by taking care of others uh, I think I've had to learn it. I don't think yeah, my parents. I don't think I was taught that to a strong degree. I think I was maybe implicitly taught it through the way I was raised, to an extent, but not. They don't teach that in school, school, though, right? Not in school. Definitely not in Midland, anyway. That's just food for thought. Oh, it's it's great food for thought, dude. It's it's the kale of food for thought because here, like, here's something I, I always like to think about too. Most Americans complain about the public school system like most people in the united states feel that our public school system fails our kids fails our students and like you know they, they've got all sorts of grievances and those grievances you know they, they they touch on a lot of different areas and it depends on where you go to school and like where, how affluent the community is but it's interesting because like if you actually look at the job that schools were designed to fulfill they do a pretty freaking phenomenal job of it in the united states like they were designed to bring people up to a standard level of competence so that they were employable and productive members of, of the U.S. economy. And it does a good job of that. Like, yeah, we benefit from a lot of immigrants who bring a lot of expertise here, especially in, like, PhD fields and things like that. But by and large, the, uh, the needs of the American co- economy are met by the American people who live here. So in that sense, our schools actually perform really well. And, like, you could compare our math scores to math scores in China, but th- the truth of the matter is, like, math scores don't actually determine success in many, many disciplines. So what's interesting is 
we see our schools succeeding in what they were designed for, and we still don't think they're doing a good job. And I think it's because we don't actually have an issue with how they're doing what they were designed for. We have an issue with what they were designed for. We all have this sense that like we should be teaching kids something else. We should be teaching them how to actualize on their dreams, how to actually be happy, how to be more compassionate, but we don't teach them that. And so we get upset when their math scores aren't as good as the Chinese or some other arbitrary metric because what we're really upset is, is too hard to articulate. Would you guys be interested in having a, a, a focus on education system? Because I've got some ideas I've been brewing up over the last year of working in a middle school. Yeah, dude, I'd love to hear those. Very, very interesting. Sweet. Well, maybe we can get a guest so it's not just me. But um, yeah, yeah Keith, did you feel like you got everything out you wanted to get out? Uh, I mean, no, but that's totally fine. Because... No, no, then then please keep going. I don't. I, there, I have no reason to cut you off. I just, I didn't know if you had kind of hit all your points. So, hey, why don't we just say whatever? Let's hit the next point, wherever you want to go. Oh, well, <laughs> I guess I meant no, because there's, there's like so much I want to say, which I can't always, like, I had this, I did a little bit of research on something called an inefficiency wage. I usually go back to economics because that's the, the way that it makes the most sense in my brain. But this is just this idea that like an efficiency wage is the income you pay someone over what the market would price it at to ensure they actually do the work you're paying them. Um, another way to put that is like it, if everyone just priced labor at the market rate, then the market would clear, meaning like everyone who was looking for a job would get the job. And so you'd have a situation where there was no scarcity and so there was no penalty really to losing your job because you could lose your job and then immediately go and find another one. Now, this whole model doesn't take into account reputation and how that you know, goes back and forth. But assuming that that's not a significant factor, what companies have figured out, what people have figured out is if I pay somebody more than the market clearing rate, creating artificial scarcity, there's a punishment for losing your job. The punishment is you might not find another one. So it's like, you, can't, you owe me. You got to make this work because if I fire you, you could be screwed. And so you, you create this condition where, you know, I don't want you to shirk. I don't trust you to actually work hard. So I'm going to create a false sense of security, uh, of scarcity so that you have to work hard. Sort of like if they won't love me, then they'll fear me. And that I think is just another great example of like that. That's not like an optimal situation. Nobody who is devising this system from the get go would suggest using that as a, as a method of, you know, guiding good behavior, making sure employees are actually contributing proportional to what they're being paid. But that's what we have because, again, that like that is the language we speak. We speak punishment, scarcity, and like, the relationship between those two. And I don't know. I was just thinking, like, you know, it, it seems so crazy to me, like, that that's the system we've arrived at rather than just going, like, what if we made a situation where people actually wanted to do their job? Like, there's always going to be assholes who don't. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, there's going to be, like, teenagers and, and other people who are just disgruntled and upset, and it's not to do with their job. It's to do with personal things, and they need help in a different way. But, like, let's not let's not make our system for the lowest common denominator of person who doesn't want to contribute. Looking at somebody who genuinely wants to contribute, how would you attract them to the job, and how would you, like, get them to do it? And I, I was thinking about this. Like, there's there was an article written by a Yale undergrad named Marina Keegan. She died in a car accident. Um, a couple of years after she wrote this article, but basically it's called even artichokes have doubts. It was written for like the Yale undergrad newspaper. And it's all about how a vast like proportion of, I think it's even a majority of the people who graduate from Yale and other Ivy league schools go on to work in either consulting 
or investment banking. And her assertion was like, this doesn't really make sense. Like these are some of the brightest minds in the country and they're all going to work in these particular fields. And there's no way that they all just love those two fields. Like that, that statistically doesn't pair out. And so her assertion in that article is just that they go to those jobs because they're economically rewarding and because the jobs sort of sell them this lifestyle that they believe they want. This lifestyle of like, you're going to travel around the world, you're going to make a lot of money, you'll be able to buy the things you want, yada, yada, yada. But then she said, okay, so let's assume that that's what these companies are selling. And she would talk to her peers who had agreed to an offer at consulting firms or investment banks. And she asked them, do you believe what they're selling? Like, do you actually think the lifestyle is great? And like, you know, almost all of them said, no, no, it's not as good as they make it out to be. You work really hard, you get stressed out. Most people don't last very long. So she was like, this is bizarre, right? Everybody who's buying what they're selling knows it's not real. Like they know it's a facade, but they buy it anyway. And so her, her ultimate claim in the article is just that it's not that these companies were winning over these students on their own merit. It's that like the ecosystem the students face has failed them. They don't want to work for the consulting firm. They just want to work for the consulting firm more than they want to work for anything else because it's too economically punishing to go elsewhere. Like it's too economically costly to give up your spot in line for investment banking to go do your real passion. And I look at that and I just go, dude, like that is a huge problem. Like if our top minds, you know, taking uh, Ivy League grads as top minds, which we could debate, but like if our top minds are disproportionately going into these very niche fields, then like, what are we missing out on? Like what great progress could we have been experiencing that we haven't because our growth has been stunted because every nutrient in the system just goes right to like the consulting investment banking dick. <laughs> and so like, I don't know, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, just like this idea that what, what if, you know, like I, I think about it in, in terms of myself, I'm working, I'm probably going to go work for Deloitte. Like I got that full-time offer. That's probably what I'm going to do for the first couple of years out of my master's. And I'm not doing it because that's what I really want to do or where I think I can make the most impact. I'm doing it because it's like the most rational choice for me to make because it pays me reasonably well, it sets me up with great experience, and it keeps as many doors open as possible while I desperately try to find the door that's both going to put food on my table and let me do the things I want to do. Like, I, I am making so many compromises, and this, like, you know, obviously super privileged white dude here, but I'm making a lot of personal compromises simply because I'm not able to find what I'm looking for. And I don't think it's because it's not out there. I think it's because we have a system that, again, is artificially manipulated to create a sense of scarcity and desperation to drive people towards a particular set of fields at the expense of not only like just the other fields, but I think our economic well-being at, at large. Yeah, I, I really liked her article. I think I would recommend you read our, even Artichokes Have Doubts. But I, I don't know. I think there's something to that. I think there's this idea that like we have to carrot and stick people because if we don't, then like we won't get what we want out of them. But like that like that's a Dunbar's number kind of problem, right? That's like how you treat strangers, people you don't know at all and you can't trust. Good reference. But yeah, but, but you know what I mean? Like, like that, that's crazy. Like to do that with people you interviewed and talked to for a long time and think they're going to be a good part of your team. You're still like, we can't trust this asshole. So like set them up with a contract. Like it's just weird how much emphasis we have to put on the fact that nobody can trust anyone. You've brought up this, this idea of scarcity and scarcity and punishment. And would you say that scarcity and punishment are two prominent fixtures of a game A system? Yeah, yeah. And so do you think those go hand in hand with adversarial or rivalrous systems themselves? 
I yeah, I think so. I mean, for something to be rivalrous, there's the implication that there's a winner and a loser, and losers, as we understand them, are usually paired with some sort of punishment. Whether that means like positive punishment, where they're actually punished, or just they don't get what they wanted. Right. And I think scarcity, right? Like, why? Like, what are you competing over? If I could just leave the game and get it somewhere else, then I wouldn't compete with you for it. So it's scarce. So yeah, I would agree. So, but that scarcity could be manufactured. Oh yeah, that I think it's often manufactured. I like, think about it like that. How many lawnmowers does a neighborhood need? <laughs> I can't afford a lawnmower. It's not because like you understand what I'm saying. Like if I moved into a new neighborhood and I don't have a lawnmower. Ideally, I would just borrow my neighbors because you mow your lawn once a week at most for an hour, let's say, which means the other hundreds of hours, your lawnmower is not being used. The fact that like everybody in the suburb all owns a lawnmower makes no sense. Like, th- again, if somebody were to develop a system from the top down, you'd be like, are you insane? Like, why, why are there a hundred lawnmowers in the subdivision? You need two, like, or three. And, and that's kind of like, I'm not saying that Uber is a like, humanitarian saint here, but what they've identified is that like, not everybody needs a car. People need a car to get from A to B, but then they don't need it after they got to B. And so like this idea of just having resources in circulation means that you can actually serve a way greater number of people with less resources, which means this perceived scarcity, like that lawnmower costs $180 because of the amount of steel in it. And like, you gotta be able to buy it. It's like, or we could all go in on a 10th of a lawnmower and be fine. And for some people, hobbyists, they're gonna want their own lawnmower. That, that, that's where they make their sort of splurge investment but there's so many things where like you know public goods if we were able to structure public goods in a better way um and not have them succumb to the tragedy of the commons we could do a lot of good in that regard too so So i think education is the perfect next topic because it's definitely a public good it's got huge externalities like how we educate our kids literally builds the next iteration of society and it's it's like a huge hotbed for conflict and funding problems and all sorts of things. So I think that like that is the the best next option, Eli. Okay, great. I'll I'll remind me and like you did for today's episode, um I'll I'll do some research so that I'm not coming at like where we're coming from with a completely speculative uh approach as usual. <laughs> So. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't think I did the best job at the start. It, it's hard because like I get really excited about these ideas and I kind of just want to get into a particular example, like the chocolate slave labor. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's hard because like, yeah, I'm glad you stopped me. It's important to like frame it and talk about why. I don't know, like. No, but I think it's good. I mean, it's hard to talk about abstract idea without really, you know, getting into the, the details of a, of an example because like otherwise it's hard to flesh out all of the different nuances of that idea so i mean it's great that we went into an example yeah we pulled it back and you know went more abstract again but like i i like that idea i mean i i think it's really useful because like it also helps people frame it in terms of things that they have experienced like everybody's eating a chocolate bar and if they start thinking about the consequences of that and the impact of that then it, it really settles that idea down in the context of their own life which is the only way people ever you know, take things they hear and actually change at all so i mean i think it was really valuable could you guys humor me for a second? Um, and I don't have to keep this in the podcast, but I'm, I'm, I've just been thinking it for the last fifteen minutes. So I want to, I want, I'd love if you guys could humor this idea for a second. Not idea, just like a question of, like, okay, game A has these fixtures of adversarial situations 
with scarcity largely manufactured as a result of the system, how the system works um, that results in punishment for those who lose the uh, adversarial uh, battle of some sort. Um, yeah, is that is that fair? Yeah. Okay, so could you humor me on, like, if we took currency out of the equation, then is scarcity and... Well, I, I guess I, I'm sure it will still occur, but I, my question is, like, can you help me understand where scarcity and punishment might come to bear in a non-currency system? Ooh, uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't, like, developed a lot of thoughts on this. Like, let's just take it to... So let's imagine... What's a good example of a pre-currency world? Like... Why don't we go to like like feudal Europe? Is that kind of what you mean? Where like, well, they kind of had currency there. No, I I'm uh, all like, in, like okay. I know uh, all I'm trying to say. I'm not because like there's not a huge reason to try to convince people that this meritocracy idea is the right one because it's not gonna happen. You know, it's just like I, I'm just trying to. It helps me think about things. Don't, don't dismiss it out of hand like that. What? I, I think yeah. Well, okay, but I'm just that. saying. I'm just saying like. Let's just talk about it in terms of that. I'm not, but without me saying like, I I need to convince you guys that this has to happen or anything. Just like, if people are, in order to do things, if people have to earn, I guess I can't think of a better word than points that they don't spend. They're just like, they reach certain thresholds of points. Uh, is the scarcity still going to, and the punitive aspects still going to exist. Like one thing that comes to mind maybe is if there are, is a scarcity of ways to acquire points, but I don't know. Maybe this is too hard to talk about, too abstract. A social credit score kind of thing where you, you get something other than currency to value who you are. Yeah, that, that term carries negative connotations, but... I was going to uh, say, social credit's bad, but I mean, I think Eli's idea is basically you reach thresholds through, you know, work and you obtain those thresholds, but it doesn't mean you spend anything. Those thresholds just open up new opportunities for you that you were, you know, you gain access to because you did enough socially responsible things. Yeah. And, and like, I think I feel that the best, a good way of illustrating, um, an important difference between that and currency is that with money, I can't go to, uh, I can't fly to Haiti and like instead of working um volunteer there to help after some disaster for a long period of time because i'll lose my livelihood and that has lots you know that's going to be bad right but in this system you would be able to uh earn these points because they're not like it's not like you earning points takes away points from the system or anything you just are able to like as your job in a sense like go there and do that thing and that earns you points and allows you to like have access to the things that you want. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I'm just, cause I, I like that you put things in terms of scarcity and punishment. So I, I'm just wondering if, and okay, the more important, the thing that's important here is not to ask ourselves. So is this meritocracy idea the best alternative? What I actually want to be asking through bringing this up is, is the fact that we use a, a currency, like use this, 
you know, that there is some fixed amount. And yes, we keep making more, but like the fact that there's this, that we use a currency based system to, to make this whole thing happen. Could that play, could that be the reason that the scarcity and punishment exists in game A? Because that to me has the implication of game B can't have currency. I don't know that I have an answer to that, but like what you said about like that idea of flying to Haiti and instead of just volunteering, but the reason a lot of people won't is because like, what will you have to come back to, right? Because if you don't earn money, you're screwed. I think that's like a very brilliant insight. Like it's, it's obvious in a way, but like it's brilliant. The way no, that's like it. the biggest, that was kind of the, I mean, one of the biggest uh, driving factors behind the whole idea is that you should be okay. No, the driving factor was like you shouldn't be punished for sacrificing your own time. Yeah, but beyond that, you should be reward. It was like you should be rewarded for doing things that are good for the world. Because I think like money's role, and maybe this is maybe this is not the same as how you were defining it in terms of like valuing utility, but maybe it is. I'm not sure. Um, but like my opinion is that money's role should be rewarding people for doing what's best for society and so i think that helping out after disasters is something that's good for society but people aren't doing that even though it's good for society because they need money or they're they're going to be they're gonna have a scarcity of resources they're gonna be punished for not earning the money that they get from their job that they probably that in most cases people get less fulfillment out of and are doing less for society um, than if they were to go somewhere and help out after a disaster. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to get at with my whole thing about, like, why I'm going to work at Deloitte, right? I'm going to work at Deloitte because it would be dumb for me not to because of what I would have to give up to do the other thing. Think about what would be happening. Like, think about the world we would have if those large percentage of Ivy League grads went to not work for nonprofits after they graduated instead. Yeah, and imagine it, like not only if they went to work at it, but it was seen as as a sexy, high impact job. Like part of the appeal of going to these firms is that like they they traffic in this idea of being like the movers and shakers, like the get shit done people. And that like that identity is not somehow inextricably linked to money. It could definitely like you could imagine the get shit done people who are actually doing something amazing for the world. That is a very compelling idea. I love the idea of like reducing people's job friction. Like this, there's a, an economist um, named Coase. His last name was Coase, and he had like this great theory about a lot of things. But one of them was just this idea of like transaction costs and how it should be the role of the government, like in public interest, to lower transaction costs wherever possible. And I I take that in the most general sense, which is like anytime there's a social friction, we should be trying to limit it. We should be trying to make it so people can get closer to what they want with less inhibition. Like that's what the goal should be. And I think this, this potentially would be a great way to do it, right? Like get rid of currency and you get rid of a lot of the job friction around like doing what you're actually good at and passionate about. I mean, I guess like the currency version of this is coming to mind now could be like anybody who goes to, um, to support some sort of disaster relief or something, you know, or something like that, you know, some actual hands-on, uh, goodwill work that takes you away from your job is paid their their wage <laughs> as they do that thing 
I think there was a lot of like comp complexities in doing something like that, but I guess that's, that that just came to my mind as like how you might go about that situation, trying to do that with money. But I just think that this is this is better. It's just like you you earn points for doing your job. You earn points for doing uh, disaster relief. You might earn more points for doing the disaster relief than your job. Either way, you're doing something for society. You're allowed to get more access to things you want as a result of doing it. You're not, I don't know, it's just, that's, that's how I, I'm thinking about it. That's it for this episode of Idea Garden. If you made it this far, you either have way too much time on your hands, or I made you feel guilty enough to listen to the whole thing. Either way, thank you so much. I hope you'll tune in next time.